Back in John chapter 4, that's our message this morning. <clears throat> when we look at the, just the ministry of Jesus throughout, throughout his ministry, he was known to regularly associate himself with all kinds of people. Um, many of whom, uh, leadership, the leadership in those days would go out of their way to, to avoid. Okay, as a matter of fact, I would say, in that day, those people that associated with Jesus, they would automatically be on their avoid list. And these are people that they would deem considered unworthy or unclean. Uh, we saw some over the past few weeks in Will's messages. We saw the lepers whom he actually touched to heal them. He dealt with Gentiles. Remember the, the, the centurion who he healed his servant. He also touched the dead, something that was considered unclean, and they rose. And I think of that one interest, it's one incident in Matthew 9 where he was on his way to heal, to raise a dead girl to life, actually. Jairus, remember Jairus, his daughter? And on the way, a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years grabbed the hem of his garment. Uh, and the fact that he, knowing all things, allowed that woman to touch him, and then he was going to go touch that the dead girl and raise her to life. There's two unclean things that he, uh, through the law, he had to go do a whole ceremonial deal to get clean again. Touching the leper was one. Dealing with Gentiles, big no-no to the Jews. Uh, again, touching the dead to raise them. Allowing a woman to uh, touch the hem of his garment. I mean, then he went around, he healed demoniacs. Um, he even, we saw again a week or so ago, he even ate with sinners. He sat down at the table. I'd like to go back and revisit that one, but this time, instead of going to Mark, let's look at Luke. Luke's ring. This is one of those um, incidents that made into all three of the synoptics. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. I want to pick it up just, just a little bit out of there. Luke 5, 29 and 30. Something you might not have remembered because it was a very, you know, it's a very small point, but it's, I think it's big in a way. Levi, we know Levi, that's Matthew, gave a big reception for him. That, think about that. That was not just, the, you know, they sat down at the dinner table and all these people came wandering in. This was actually uh, Levi, Matthew himself, the, tax, the former tax collector. He has he's since cashed in with the IRS. And there was... And in that house, there was a great crowd of tax collectors, and Luke says of other people, Matthew and Mark say of sinners, tax gatherers and sinners, to make the point. I'm going to stop right there. Think about, I love this about Matthew. Those are the people Matthew knew. Being a tax collector, as we were told a couple of Sundays ago, he was ostracized by the Jewish community for a lot of reasons. Number one, he was kind of viewed as a traitor and taking taxes for the Romans. And they had a nasty habit of skimming, overcharging, and skimming money. So Levi brought all these, Matthew brought all these people in and invited Jesus. You know what Matthew was doing? Matthew was bringing in his friends, his old crowd of fellow tax collectors and sinners to sit down and meet Messiah. Matthew was, in his own way, being a brand spanking new believer, was sharing the gospel with him as best as he knew how. Think about that. You might be one day old in the Lord. You're not too young to share whatever you know. Again, Matthew did that. Now, so he gave that reception, and the Pharisees, in verse 30, the Pharisees and their, scribe, and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Well, remember, we know Jesus' answers. It's the sick that need the physician, right? And then you remember another tax collector, a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus, the little guy that climbed up in the tree? Zacchaeus, he was a chief collector. Let's, we're in Luke. If you want to look in Luke 19, 5 through 7, here's Zacchaeus got up in the tree 
so he could see Jesus. I could say he was a little short guy. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to, and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your house. Again, he's going to go into another tax, not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He's going, I'm going to go, into, I'm going to go, I'm going to go visit you in your house. And then Zacchaeus, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus, again, he responds to his critics in verses 9 and 10 and said to them, It's kind of like he went beyond them. He responded by kind of not even dealing with them directly. He says, And Jesus said to him, that would be Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too, that's Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and saved that which was lost. And you know what? It did not matter who that person was. As a matter of fact, um, normally speaking, you 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 wouldn't come to like a church like this to seek and save the lost. You're going to go out there on the highways and byways to seek the saved that are lost. Now, there's some churches out there you would go there to seek those that are lost. But this, thankfully, isn't one of them. Okay? Um, And I love that. A point to remember is to many Jews, especially those in leadership, as we move into this, our section here of the Samaritan woman, there was nothing lower or more unclean than a Samaritan in their eyes. Okay, and I share these verses to, to set up for the, Jesus taking all that time, not only with the Samaritan woman, but then, as we already read, he will receive people from town, from that Samaritan village. And um, <clears throat> now, back into the text, John 4, 1 through 9. It says, when therefore the Lord knew that the, the Pharisees heard uh, heard that uh, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Let's stop right there. Well, the Pharisees, again, they heard about Jesus, most likely, uh, you know, a couple of, couple of possibilities why he left. The two that make sense to me is, okay, it was very early in his ministry, very early, okay? And Jesus heard you know, about the Baptist, John the Baptist's work. And it was around this time where, you know what, what, the, what John the Baptist said it would be where John's ministry would begin to decrease because the Lord's must increase. So right there, being very close, we didn't, let's not get a conflict, not a conflict, but a confusion, cause confusion. Well, you know, because they're both, when you, you John was, teaching the, his baptism to repentance, repent for the kingdoms at hand. What did Jesus do after, he was, after his baptism? He went out and started preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And so is it two different? You can see the possible confusion. So, he's, so he then decided, okay, I'm going to head now to Galilee. John is down at the Jordan in, in Judea. I'm going up, we're going to go to Galilee. And on his way, he said, I want to go through Samaria. And about the time he got to Samaria would be the time in the, uh, in the historical flow of the Gospels where John was most probably arrested. In Mark 1.14, it said, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel. He went on his way to Galilee, which was about a three-day journey, Walk. He stopped in Samaria, and then by the time he got into Galilee, John had been arrested. So all this was, all this was taking place. All this was taking place. Now, as we we move, we continue through here. Now, Jesus arrives at the well, verses four through six. There's a lot we can say here. We just a lot of historical background, but suffice it to say, he's there. He's at the well. And he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4 says. There was two overland options to travel from Judea to Galilee. One, go through Samaria, which was the shortest way. And like I say, it was about a three days walk. 
Now, if, and then there was the other one called the Transjordan Route, where you would go up, you'd cross over the Jordan River to the east around Jericho, walk up uh, through, um, uh, let me see, what it called, through um, Perea and Decapolis. Now, in Decapolis, it was a, a Gentile area. Uh, then cross back over the Jordan, and you wind up on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that was longer, but if, and if you were one of those Jews back then that really and truly hated the Samaritans, you would spend that extra day or whatever it took to make that jog. And some people did just, did just that. They did not like them. And that, I love that passage where it says he had to pass through Samaria. And first thing, well, why? Well, again, I think there's two reasons. One, I think he was demonstrating what would be the future command in terms of spreading his gospels. Remember what he said to them in Acts 1.8? You will be witnesses both in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. His ministry lived what he was going to command them to do. He lived it. He lived it. He, he never did it. He never did anything. He never, that, he never asked people to do something he wouldn't do himself. Now, and the second one, I'm firmly convinced that this, Jesus had a divine appointment there. And it was with that, not only with that Samaritan woman, but with those other folks in town that wound up getting saved through that conversation. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well. Now, that was about... Um, well, let me read the passage here. <clears throat> and so he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground where Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was, was sitting thus by the well, and, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, Jacob's well was about a half mile outside of Sychar, about to the south, and the, the well itself was about a hundred feet deep and fed by a spring. Now, last I read on there, that, that well was actually still there and still producing water. Okay? Um, where it says Jesus being wearied, he, he stopped. One, again, a little side point here. Where it says this reinforces the fact that Jesus was fully human as well as being fully God. When he walked a long distance, he got tired. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When it was hot and dry, he got thirsty, just like any other human being. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and then the sixth hour is, is important because the sixth hour would be about 12 noon in terms of Jewish reckoning. And I believe that's what is, is the reckoning here. Now, the divine appointment. Verses 7 through 9. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Now, the woman arrives. She came out to draw water. And you can see by the, by the, the wording here, she was by herself. She was by herself at uh, high noon, very warm part of the day. Most women came in the evening, and usually in groups. And you can see the example date goes all the way back to Genesis 24, where the ladies would come up in the evening with their water pots, be quite a little social event all together. And I believe it's quite possible the uh, other women in town consider her an outcast. For Remember what Jesus asked her about the husband? Well, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. So... She would be considered by even the vile Samaritans as being somebody unclean, unholy. They did, we'll get into it a little later, but they did have their own little religion up there. But then Jesus, though, he invites the conversation. He invites the conversation by, give me a drink, he said. Now, by just, ask, by just asking that, this defied social customs of the Jews having no social interaction with Samaritans, especially a woman of questionable character. Okay? So that just was not done. Matter of fact, um, I'm going to go back to Luke 
Luke 7, Luke 7, 36 to 39, and said, well, uh, uh, was requesting him to dine with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and there was a woman in the city. This is Luke 7, 36 to 39. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping, wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. See that attitude? And then we pick it up in verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said, he said to Simon, but he's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon, who was the Pharisee that owned the house. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But, and that was a hospitality thing. Even if he had a slave do it. Foot washing was a hospitality. That was something, nothing. Didn't even bring out the water. But she has wet my feet with her tears and, <clears throat> and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but, but, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Not the first time that question was asked. But, you know, <clears throat> the Samaritan woman was just about ready to find out who this man was. His disciples, in verse, it tells us in verse 8, they went into the city, that's... Um, Irrelevant a little bit for today, but uh, they went to buy food. I thought that interesting, though, that his disciples went into Sychar, Samaritan city, bought Samaritan food, and we're going to bring it back. Obviously, Jesus had a discussion with them before they went in, because we're going to see later they weren't always like this. Okay? They were, again, when you're born and raised a Jew in that climate, in that day and age when scribes and Pharisees and, and the uh, <clears throat> priests were so perverted, the law was so perverted, you're going to have that ingrained in your head. okay? And it's, these old habits and traditions are very hard to break. And we see that all through the Gospels. The, the apostles just stepping on themselves over and over again. Just, you, know, they just, it's just, you just don't get over that indoctrination <laughs> that you've been given all your life in, in a few moments, even with the Lord as your instructor, okay? Now, the Samaritan woman, she responds to Jesus' request in verse, in verse 9, where it says, She therefore said to him, How is it for you being a Jew, ask me to drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John adds a parenthesis in there for us. John, the writer, he says, For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That is an understatement. John, John interjects, interjects this parenthesis to us, the readers, that uh, we just, just don't forget the fact that, you know, it is, this is not normal. This is not normal practice in that day. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for it. There's the historical setting alone. I, I went to that this week. I spent hours just reading and looking at that. I'm not going to share it. We want to stay awake. So... I'll give you a quick highlight. I'll give you a quick highlight. The historical strife from the, between the Jews and Samaritans goes way back. As a matter of fact, if you want to point fault at anybody, it started with Solomon's sin. Back in uh, 1 Kings 11, Solomon marrying all those wives, foreign wives, and then bringing their foreign gods into the land. Major big time sin. You can read all about that in First Kings eleven and twelve. It's just all there. And then we know eventually in seven twenty two B.C. the Northern King. Remember that, and that caused the division of the kingdom. 
Jeroboam and Rehoboam, okay? That caused the division. And uh, the northern kingdom under Rehoboam, 50-50 shot on that one with my memory. Anyway, the king of the north, (laughs) he said, we want nothing to do with David or his religion. And they went and adopted paganism. This went to the north. Ten tribes went to the north. Um, And then around uh, 722 B.C., because of that, Israel was Israel, the name given to the northern ten, was taken captivity by the Assyrians. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And the Assyrian king relocated many people from other countries into the area we know of as Samaria, which was the northern kingdom's area. You can see that also in 2 Kings 17. And as time passed, the Samaritans then became a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. After a while, you know, all these Jews were taken captive up there. You know how people migrate back and Jews from the south migrate up. People wander around. They intermix and just move around. We're talking years and years now. Um, And there was always, there was bad blood between the Samaritans and and even when, when, before the Assyrians took it over, there was bad blood. They had fights and wars. And like I said, not even going to get into all that. I think a lot of you know that anyway. Um, even around 400 BC, I'll just move, move, the, move forward to 400 BC. Let's get closer to our day and age, right? So 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And around 128 BC, a Jewish leader called John Hyrcanus destroyed the thing. Did not better the relationships one bit. And so it's just, again, there's just a bad, bad blood in history between these two folks. In Jesus' day, the hard feelings still existed. And those hard feelings were mutual. They went both ways. They went both ways. There was a whole lot of Samaritans who just could care less if the Jew lived or died. Luke 9, 51 to 54, gives us a great example of both sides' ill feelings. Okay? Gives us a good example. Luke 9, 51-54 says this. When the days were approaching for his ascension, now this is like this, his ascension into heaven, so he's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. Passion week would begin, and then he would, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> die, buried, risen, and ascend. This is what's, what's coming. This is what's going back. This is what that's talking about. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. So he's going. He's got to go. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they entered, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Okay, so he's going to enter because on the way down, you've got to stop. You're not going to make the whole trip in one day, obviously. It's a three-day journey. So he's going to stop off and get a room in the, in, the, in the Samaritan village. But, this is verse 53, but they, that's the Samaritans, did not receive him. Why? Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. He was a Jew going to Jerusalem to worship for the Passover. Samaritans, they have Mount Gerizim. You're going to Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, right? Nah. So they were, no. So they didn't receive him. Now here's the other side of the coin. When his disciples, James and John, these are the two sons of thunder, remember? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. When when James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven to consume them? Now there is a great evangelical attitude, isn't it? You don't receive me? Bring it down, you know. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not how it's supposed to work. Under, you know, and then there's, a, there's an addition in there that I didn't put on there because you'll notice it's in brackets in your Bible, which means it probably wasn't part of the original text. But the spirit of what that bracket said is true. That's not the way Christ wanted them to react. Everybody out there, no matter who, who, however low they might be on society's totem pole, those people, no matter how vile they are, no matter what they're doing, they are part of our mission field. You know, sometimes I think we need to pray as much for ourselves that we get through our biases and go deal with these people as much as we need to pray 
that they might receive salvation. You see what I mean? Sometimes, you know, like the old saying goes, we had met the enemy and he is us. Yeah, we can, we can be our biggest hindrance sometimes. And then from now the rest, verses 10 to 26, Jesus is going to start witnessing to this woman. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. You can, uh, you can pick up some, his, some of his methodology too. Um, I, I see this methodology that he uses here. I see a lot of that in Paul. and He traveled around and, and he took advantage of the circumstance. And he played off the circumstance to speak the gospel. And so here he used the well which produces water. You know how I put that together? And he's going to talk about living water. Okay? And I, it makes me think of, uh, you know, the incident when Paul on Mars Hill, remember? He went there and had these, just, these idols all over the place. You know, they, and he, Mars Hill, too, you know, where people are up there talking about religion, right? Okay. And he said, hey, I noticed all these gods you got up here. Hey, I can see there's one to the unknown god. Let me tell you about that one. You know, and he, just, he took advantage of the, the, the circumstances around him and used it in, as a jumping off point. And this is what Jesus is doing here. Verse 10, it says, When Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have, have given you living water. Let's stop right there for a moment. If you knew the gift of God... Obviously implying she did not, and of course she didn't. And what we're going to see through this passage, that Jesus is referring to himself as the very gift of God. Very gift of God. We go back to, and that's the, one of the themes of John's gospel. John, right back to John chapter 1. Verses, I mean, the whole gospel of John majors on the person of Christ as being the Son of God, the divine Messiah that came to earth to save, save people from sin. I mean, right here, this, these first few verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Doesn't get any plainer than that. He was in the beginning with God. I mean, you could literally say face-to-face, as co-equals. All things came into the world by him, and apart from him, nothing came into the world that has come into being. I mean, it, it's, it, that may sound jumbled, but it's really not. It's, it's, it's emphasizing. If it's in existence, Jesus Christ created it. That's what that passage is saying. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that's not just life. That's just not just physical, but that's physical life as being the creator, but also spiritual life as being the redeemer. See, all life is in him. All life, physical and spiritual. You need to look to no other. It's all right here in Jesus Christ. And the light shines, and in him was life and the light of men. In verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And again, the Gospels are full of examples of that very thing. Now, as a matter of fact, the purpose for John writing his gospel, uh, it, you can say John wrote one big, huge gospel track. And, you know, over the ages, the gospel of John has been used as one big gospel track. You know, you look at the ancient manuscripts, and there's more copies, fragments, and remnants of the gospel of John than any other New Testament writing. And even later on, you know, when after the printing press, Gospel of John, it's all over the place. It's, it's a great, I mean, if you grasp this, you've got, the, the gospel is here. The gospel's in this book. And John himself, the writer, you know, if you want to know, uh, gee, what was John, why did John write the gospel? Well, he, he, says, he tells us right here at 2031, he says, but these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And if you've read the gospel and got to this point, you'll know that like the term son of God, remember the, remember the uh, Jewish leadership didn't like him? He says, you're claiming God as your father. And they wanted to stone him for that. Because when you say you're the son of God, by claiming God as your father, you make yourself equal with God. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what he did. Because that's exactly what he is. 
He is face to face. John 1. Co-equal. Co-equal. Now he emptied himself and came to earth. But when he emptied himself, he did not empty himself of deity. He just emptied himself of a lot of privileges and prerogatives. That's all. But no, he was very God when he was walking on this earth and hanging on that cross. Okay? Now, and to salvation is a, salvation itself is a gift of God. And you could look at the great, uh, what's called the new covenant out of Jeremiah 31. Uh, of course, she might not know that. And we'll get into that a little bit. But where the, the Samaritans, they, again, they, they walked to a different drummer. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of Moses. That's, that's it. Everything past Deuteronomy is, they just didn't accept it. And even at that, you look, up their, you look at their copy they had, there was a lot of what's known as variants in it, some pretty strange, it wasn't a pure copy, <laughs> let me just put it that way. There was, there was some problems with it, the one the Samaritans had anyway. Well, let me, uh, Jeremiah 31 31 to 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You notice it says the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the combined kingdom, the future from when Jeremiah wrote it. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their hearts, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I, I, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That day is still out there. That day when all of national Israel will be saved. That day is out there, but that day is coming. That day is coming. Scripture says it, you can bank on it. Now, and Jesus went on to say, you know, he went on and talked about it. if she would have, you know, if she would have known and have asked him, he, he would have given them with living water. But at this point, she didn't. Now, living water is, common, is a common Old Testament metaphor for, for cleansing and salvation. It's common. It's even uh, used in, in the New Testament. But, but another one, Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, this is really parallel in terms of what Jeremiah was written, Jeremiah 31. This is Ezekiel restating really that um, uh, <clears throat> the new covenant, the new covenant per Old Testament speak. Ezekiel 36, 25, 27 says, speaking of the nation, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Again, that one, as far as, the, as, far as national Israel goes, that's out there. We have it now as members of his church. We have it now. And could be, too, eluding the water, eluding something she would know, maybe spark her. I've got it down here. You can look at it if you want. But in Numbers 28 to 12, remember Moses? Speak to the rock, Moses, and water will come out. Water. And we know through Scripture, who was that rock? Christ. That rock was Christ. But let's go... 20, verse 8 through 12, Numbers. Take the rod, and you and, you and, your, and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. And it may yield its water. So you thus bring forth water from them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Now, Moses has been having a bad 
number of days with this group of people out there. Moses was just a wee bit frustrated, and it's going to show up here, and we keep reading. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just that he had commanded him. So far, so good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. That's a big price to pay. Moses disobeyed God, hit the rock, hit it twice. All right, that's it. You're not going into the promised land. Done. You're not going in. Serious, serious business not to obey God. Even Moses paid the price. Okay, but and like again, we know that um, uh, in, that uh, that's, that's, uh, you feel bad for Moses. I mean, how would you like to have his job? I'm trying to keep that ornery mob of people forty years, folks. <laughs> forty years. I wouldn't have got past forty hours. That's it. I'm. <laughs> that's it. I'm calling in sick. This is this is this is insane. I mean, these people are just nuts. And, man, it was a tough bunch. I mean, the Lord himself, you stiff-necked people. How many times do we read that in the Old Testament? Stiff-necked people. I mean, you talk about contrarians. But even though, back to the idea of water, water in the New Testament, matter of fact, water is actually is even used in the very last invitation in the Scripture to salvation. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, it says this. The Spirit... And the bride say, come. And let one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Just drink it in. You may have it. Take it without cost. Again, water, again, being uh, symbolic of cleanliness and, and salvation itself. The water of life. Well, verse 11 and 12, back to John 4. The woman misses the point. She said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his cattle and his son and everybody else? Well, again, she was still thinking in physical terms. Jesus moved on to making spiritual analogies. Okay, where can I find this water? I mean, people not understanding Jesus was very common. Uh, we could go back one chapter to chapter 3. Nicodemus, a well-educated man, a man who Jesus said, you, the teacher, and you don't understand what I'm saying? Yeah, see, there's a lot of people, smart people. That doesn't mean she's dumb. That means she just doesn't understand, okay? Didn't get it, didn't get it. So he kept going. And then we get to verse 12, she, it sounds like she may be coming just a wee bit skeptical here. You're not greater than Jacob here, are you? You know, who, who, who dug this well. And then Jesus responds to her with, again, he'll, now he'll, he's going to kick up the spiritual emphasis a notch here with greater spiritual emphasis. Verse 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. It kind of reminds me of John chapter 6. You know, your fathers ate the manna and died. The bread I've given you will give you eternal life. Another food analogy, if you will. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, again, the emphasis now that Jesus on himself, that I give you, you don't go out and dig this up in a well or find it at a creek. This is water that I give you personally. Shall give, he'll give you, shall never thirst. I mean, never, as in never again, Okay. But the water that I give him become him a well of water singing up, springing up into eternal life. You take in this water, it'll spring up, and you're going to get eternal life out of this thing. There's no water on earth that's going to give you that. But the spiritual water of the gospel will. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The spiritual water 
the truth of who I am. And again, all through, especially from this part, from this time on, you're going to see over and over again, Jesus, when people say, what do you do? Well, even in chapter 3 with uh, Nicodemus, you must believe, 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 believe. By believing, you got the water. And therefore, salvation will spring up. You're going to have it. You're going to get it. It's yours. Okay, verse 15. She's still thinking from the physical. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty nor come to, to this well to draw. See, she's still thinking of physical water, physical thirst. And then now here, Jesus is going to drive the point home. Verses 16 through 18. And he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, "Uh, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one husband you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Oops. Right there. When presenting the gospel, one thing that must be dealt with is sin. Remember, John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus, after his baptism, repent, the kingdom is at hand. The the New Testament presentation of the gospel, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Repent. It's there. It's in the old, all over the, we don't have to go back. We know it's all the old. Every prophet's cry was repent in one way or another. Uh, So this is not a new teaching, but it has to be dealt with. Boy, that caught our attention, didn't it? It would have caught mine when you start. It's one thing to tell you things you did yesterday, but to start naming sins, you know, that that got a little touch and go there, I bet, for her. But but she had to confront the sin. And I think, you know, I don't think the woman really wanted to go there. And I can tell by the next point she makes, verses 19 and 20, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Okay. And then she goes, the next verse 20. Well, let's talk about the denominations. You know, it says in verse 20, where our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Wait a minute. Yeah, let, let's change the subject. Let's talk about where we go to church. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, even though it wasn't, church wasn't using. But, you know, let's, 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 let's change the subject here. And so Jesus said to her, woman, well, you know what? One thing, though, I, I want to say, to perceive that you are a prophet, not sure exactly what she grasped at this point, but she's getting closer. She's getting closer. Memory, they only, they only, the Samaritans only use the uh, Pentateuch, right? The last book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, has a, a prophecy concerning Messiah. And it comes out of Deuteronomy 18. Verses 18 and well, actually, it starts at 15, but I'm just quoting eight, eight verses 18 and 19 out of Deuteronomy chapter 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, God's the Lord speaking to Moses, okay? And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And <clears throat> it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Note. This Jesus, Jesus is referred to as a messianic, the, the prophet there, that's a messianic prophecy. As a matter of fact, if we turn back to John one twenty one, real quick, John the Baptist is being interrogated by the Jewish leadership. And in that interrogation, they're trying to figure out who this John the Baptist is. So in verse 21, they say, and they asked him, what then are you? What then? And I said, who are you? Are you the Christ? He goes, no, I'm not the Christ. John made that perfectly clear. And verse 20, they continue asking him, says, what then are, are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Man, a few words. Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? And he, of course, he answered no. The prophet, referring back to Deuteronomy 18. Because I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, and he's going to come in your kind of power. And he will speak with your kind of authority. And uh, that's why when you see the term in the New Testament, the Gospels, it's in a few of them, where it talks about the prophet. Think Deuteronomy 18. Okay? It's just like 
um, very often, especially in Matthew and, and Mark, where uh, Jesus refers to himself as the, especially in terms of his second coming, he talks about as the son of man said this, is doing this. When you think son of man, think of Daniel chapter 7. Okay? And that it's just the prophet. Verse 20. And again, she's trying to change this up here. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, which is Gerizim, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place. Well, that's that's, uh, Mount Moriah. Well, Jesus then now, he's going to define true worship. And then we could spend quite a while just on this subject. What is true worship? 21 to 24. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Interesting. Worship the Father. We file that one away. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is of the Jews. Hmm. But an hour is coming, and now is. An hour is coming, and that, guess what? That hour is right, is here. It's here, right here where we stand, lady. When the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We'll stop right there for a moment. Now, Woman, believe me. That's what they call an aorist imperative. What does that mean? That means, listen up. It's it's a command statement. Listen up. Jesus is now speaking with the authority of the prophet. Listen to me. Worship will no longer be tied in that whole conversation about neither here at Gerizim nor in Jerusalem in the temple or any building it's not going to be necessary for worship. Worship is no longer, with the coming of Jesus, worship is no longer tied to a place. We must go to the temple to worship. No, you don't. No, that's gone. You don't even have to come to church to worship. You need to come on Sunday to worship. But it's like born and raised 12 years of Catholic school. Worship was tied to the church, tied to the building. Tied to a denomination. Okay? I knew nothing of this stuff. 12 years of Catholic school and teaching religion in all 12 years of Catholic school. I never heard any of this. I never heard any of this. I heard, I heard things like, well, there's a guy in Rome that took, that took the place of God. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> no. But Samaritans... Worship. Verse 22, Jesus saying, <laughs> and, and he goes beyond that point. He says, speaking of worship, your Samaritan worship is all wrong to begin with. How would you? <laughs> Verse 22, it says, salvation is of the Jews. You're all wrong to begin with. Well, why would you say that? Well, you go back, go back into the history. Okay, well, in Genesis, which is part of the Pentateuch, you had the Abrahamic covenant. covenant. That's where the people began, Right? We move from there, what's, what's uh, you know, we'll just bypass Noah for a while, the Noahic covenant. How about the Davidic covenant? What happens there? That's, that's the next huge one, next big one. Well, remember, remember way back in 1 Kings 11, they rejected the God of David. They, just, they said so. That's it. Want no part of them. Okay, well, all right. That's, but the Messiah is coming out of the line of David. That's kind of important, wouldn't you think? So, see, you guys missed it right off the bat. And then there's the new covenant that we read in Jeremiah and also Ezekiel. Well, that's in Jeremiah. That's not part of the Pentateuch. They missed that one too, okay? Um, And then, of course, Micah, Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, they missed that one. And a whole lot of other very important information, you know, from Joshua through Malachi. You know, that's a lot of stuff that you really need to know. A lot of stuff that even today we would do well to learn. Okay, it makes so, so much great meaning for us. You know, by rejecting 34, I'm using the way we calculate the books today. By rejecting 34 to 39 books of the Old Testament, I mean, you were put in a serious knowledge disadvantage. Let's face it. Let's face it. And you were doomed to worship in ignorance. I mean, how could you, how could you not? 
But the big point is this. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That is why salvation is a spiritual spiritual transformation which takes spiritual water to accomplish it. Physical stuff isn't going to get it done. Physical places to worship aren't going to be the norm anymore. Why? Because I am here, Jesus says. I am here. He came to... Well, like he said, I didn't come to destroy the but fulfill it. He's fulfilling all that stuff about places to worship. When he, as he was, we read that passage in Luke, he was heading toward the ascension, heading toward Jerusalem. Why was he going there? He was going there to suffer, die, and rise again from the dead. And when, when he, when he uh, that, at that last supper, when he sat down there and, and he, at the meal, and he took that bread, and he took that cup, and he passed out and said, this is my body, this is my blood. That was right there. That he was pre-shadowing what was going to happen to him and just really in hours, just hours away from that happening. Right there, when Jesus died on the cross, there is no need for a Passover supper of any kind. Jesus was that Passover lamb. He is, again, he did not destroy anything in the Old Testament, but he sure fulfilled a lot of things. Okay? And that was one of them. Old Testament form of worship being tied to a place, as, you know, the temple being where God is. Not now. Nothing about God is confined to a place. We worship in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and on top of that, he's an omniscient spirit. So it doesn't matter where we are, he's there. Okay, now, John 8, <clears throat> you know, being true worship, John 8, 31, 30 says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In verse 25, it's very interesting, verse 25, the, the lady, she acknowledges that Messiah is coming. She knows that much. She knows that much. The woman said to him, I, I know that Messiah is coming, and then parentheses, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Good job. She's got that. And Jesus said to her, and this is, this is the knockout punch for the whole conversation, really. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am, you notice he is in italics? That's for, um, <clears throat> for clarification, for reading. But quite frankly, I who speak to you am. That was the first, right there, this statement in John's gospel was the first of 23 I am statements in this, in this gospel. Very key point. Again, see, that's, but that's John's theme. And again, you know where that comes from? I am. That goes back to the Pentateuch. Exodus. Remember when, when the Lord spoke from the burning bush? Moses says, um, who do I, I, when I go back down to the people, who am I going to say comes? And, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. The ever-present I am. Yahweh. I sent you. Yahweh. Huge statement right here. Huge statement. I remember the one too in John 8, another one. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, he did not shy away from claiming who he was. And unlike some of the critics, today, false teachers today try to say so. He made it perfectly clear who he was. You, you know exactly who Jesus was by reading the Gospels. The New, Testament, the New Testament epistles are a great help. They give us a lot of the theology behind it and explain it even, make it more clear. But I'm telling you, it's, the gospel is in all four. Any, any one of these four gospels, you got it. It's there. It's there, like Jesus often says, for those who have eyes to see. It's there. It's there. And I, I pray that everyone here has eyes to see. If you don't, I pray. Pray that your spiritual vision improves, okay? That you have eyes to see. Important, important stuff. Jesus, again, is the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes on to say, then he moves on now, um, verses 4, 28 and 29, the woman perks up. 
Well, 27, the disciples return. We'll get back to them. <clears throat> I'm not being indifferent to them, but we need to move on. The clock is ticking. Funny how I always say that. The woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, <laughs> they knew her, huh? The men knew her who she was. She went and talked to the men. Women probably wouldn't talk to her. The men knew her. Came and come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Bing, the light came on. Matter of fact, the light came on, which caused her to run into town, by the way. The light came on. And why do I say that? Her witnessing is a proof of her salvation. That's what saved people do. That's what they do. I'm just come and see a man who told me all things I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the Greek version of the, you know, the Messiah, which literally means the chosen one, the chosen, you know, uh, the anointed. Uh, that he's the Messiah, isn't this not the Messiah? And uh, I'll just keep reading, verse thirty. And they came out of the city and were coming to him and. And meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. <laughs> and I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to make many comments on this one. I have food to eat that you don't even know about. Remember, this is early in the, this is early in the ministry. He says, you guys are going to learn a lot before we're done. <laughs> the disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, well, no one brought him any food to eat, did he? You know, like, did somebody else give him some food? He's not hungry. See, they didn't get it either. That's all right. They will. My food is to do the will of, my, of him who sent me and me to accomplish his work. He, he said that a lot, too, over. You know, I do what the Father tells me. I come in the Father's name. I mean, it just, it's all over the Gospel of John, especially. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, and yet there comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest already. He who reaps is, is receiving wages, and he is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows, he will also reap, so he may rejoice together. For this is the case, saying one is true. One sows, another reaps. I send to you the reap, that for which you have, have not labored. Others have labored, and you shall enter into their labor. So again, the harvest is out there. Get out there and start picking the harvest. It's there. Not every mention of harvest, by the way, is in the positive sense. This one kind of seems to be a bit, a bit more says it's out there let's pick the fruit let's reap the rewards of the harvest but again in most cases speaking about the harvest i'm just going to read a little uh, an excerpt from matthew chapter 9 verses 35 to 38 jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and and every kind of sickness seeing the people Okay, just, just seeing the masses, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. What happens to sheep without a shepherd? They get eaten by wolves. They die. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord that is, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. To pick those grains like it was alluded to in John chapter 4. What is the harvest symptomatic of here? The masses of humanity. This harvest that he's talking about is the harvest of judgment. Think of Revelation where the angel is in heaven getting ready to throw that sickle down on the earth and reap the harvest of judgment. That's the context of Matthew 9. And we need to keep that as an underlying thought when we read here in John 4, because out there, the harvest is white. The mass of humanity out there is facing eternal damnation. What are we doing about it? Are we out there trying to pick some out of there? See? That's the point. And then verse 39 to the end here. We're actually going to make it. Verses 39 to 42. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things I've done. Once again, when we read the Gospels, remember what John said at the end of, of, at the end of his Gospel? 
that he said, <clears throat> I'll just read it to you. 21, 25 says, and there are many other things which, I, which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. You know, the whole world couldn't, couldn't, is not a big enough library to hold the books if we just wrote down everything this man did and said. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole. It's, an exagger- it's, a, state- it's a statement of exaggeration for the point of, to emphasize, to make a point. What you read in these Gospels is a fraction of what he did. It's a fraction of what he actually said. But it's enough for us to do his will. But the point of it is, there's a lot of this conversation, I'm sure, did not get recorded here. Okay, so whatever Jesus said to her, she believed, she went in, and she started, and whatever this woman told these men, that caused them to believe as well. Good for her. You know, she, great. So verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Go back to where we started. What was the attitude between Jews and Samaritans? They were at each other's throat, you know? They hate, literally hated each other. That would not be a stretch. They hated each other, many of them. They, just, they literally just hated each other. But then for a Samaritan to ask a Jew, come, stay with us, speak to us, teach us, that's the grace of God. That's salvation. That's salvation. That's what it does. It changes hearts. It changed the Samaritan's heart. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's wonderful. It changes, if we're truly saved, it's, it changed our heart as well. Verses 41 42, where it says, Many more believed because of his word. And, and they were saying to the woman, This is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard from ourselves and know that. This one is indeed the savior of the world. Huge statement. Huge statement. Yeah, they have their worship. They do their worship on Mount Gerizim. But here comes some man in from Jerusalem who gave us the gospel and we believed. Tremendous, tremendous. That's the power of grace. That's the grace of God at work. It gets by all that, all those prejudices, all those blind spots, those walls or partitions are broken down. They're broken down. The gospel by the grace of God, and only with the grace of God, we'll get through. And it will get through. Many believed. And when they said it's no longer because of what you said, they weren't slighting her at all. They weren't being, they weren't dissing her, as they say today. They weren't, they were not uh, being slight to them. They were not ragging down on her, saying, ah, we don't believe, no. Actually, it was rather a confirmation of the truth of her testimony concerning Christ. They were, they were confirming, you know, it's, we go beyond that now. It's not just of what you said. We've heard them for ourselves now. Basically confirming, lady, what you told us is right. <laughs> they were confirming, actually, what she said. They weren't ragging on her at all. And this one, and I love, this is the only response a true saved person can have. This one, indeed, is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior. He is Messiah. And by that statement, they're not saying... Uh, like he's saving every single human being that ever lived in that sense of the world. But he, the savior of the world means this person, this Jesus Christ, is the only savior the world will ever see. It's the, it's the only savior that ever is. It's the only savior. There will be no other. This is it. He is the savior. There is no other. Don't look any other place. Because every other place, you'll find your false messiahs and your false messiah saviors. Just like, and I'll close with Acts 4, 10 to 12. Let it be known to all of you. This, this is uh, Peter's second sermon. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. That's the guy that they, they healed. He is the stone, speaking of Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Boy, Peter wasn't running and hiding anymore, was he? I mean, he was right out front. But he, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must 
be saved. And that is the truth. I mean, it's right on the same page. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning, Lord, for our time together. We just pray, Lord, that you were honored through this morning. We pray, Lord, as we um, <clears throat> continue that, again, that uh, we, just, we just offer you thanksgiving for those of us that have, by your grace, believed and been saved. We, we do truly, truly thank you. And, Lord, we pray if perhaps someone here has not come to faith in you, we pray that you would draw them into your kingdom today. And again, Lord, we, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.